A young man from Boston once applied to work at a major Chicago bank. And the bank sent a request to his investment firm in Boston saying, we'd like a letter of recommendation for this young Bostonian. Just let us know uh, whether you would recommend we hire him. And the letter came back very quickly, and it was full of nothing but praise. They couldn't say enough about this young man. They wrote that, that his father was a Cabot and his mother a Lowell, like Lowell, Massachusetts. And if you go back further in his family tree, you find this happy swirling together of, of Peabody's and, and Sultan stalls and all of the finest families in all of Boston. And that without hesitation, they should snatch up this young man to work for their bank. A few days later, the firm in Boston received a letter saying there seems to be some confusion. The information you've provided, it's not adequate. You see, we are not contemplating using the young man for breeding purposes, just for work. We know from Scripture, first of all, how much we tend to think about our own status and our own, uh, our own pedigree, our own spiritual background, if it's something to be bragged about, our own uh, standing in the workplace, or whatever it is that we might say on our behalf to bring glory to ourselves. But as we saw last week and this week, that little overlap between the two texts in verses 34 and 35, that God is not a respecter of persons, but accepts those from every family, nation, and race who fear him and work for his kingdom. Even, even the heathen recognized this fundamental truth on some level. I mean, we think of the, uh, the image that we see even in our own society, if you go to a courthouse or something, of, of the goddess Justice holding up the scales of justice and blindfolded. She's not blindfolded so that she won't see the evidence. She's weighing the evidence. She's blindfolded so she won't see who's involved and it won't sway her decision. Now, our God cannot be blindfolded. There is nothing that he does not know. And yet he is not one to show favoritism in this sense. At least that's what our, our friend Peter has learned here. He is no respecter of persons. And when I keep saying that, that's me falling back into the King James that I memorized as a kid. And I recognize that that might sound like something that a teacher would write at the bottom of a kid's report card. Uh, there's a big problem with Billy. He is no respecter of persons. And Billy's like, I hate persons. But that's not what we mean, of course. We mean God will not respect your pedigree. He won't respect your bragging rights. He won't respect anything that you think makes you better than the next guy. Rather, God looks at all of us the same. Broken, fallen sinners in need of grace. Sheep without a shepherd in need of someone to come and chase us down and pick us up, put us on his shoulders and bring us home rejoicing. Now what brought us to Peter's little epiphany here in verse 34 is what we saw last week. It was a, it was a very cool little uh, two-part story. What was going on uh, over here with Peter at the house of, of uh, Simon the Tanner and what was going on with Cornelius uh, miles away in his own house. Peter was up on the roof. He was praying. He was a little hungry. And he had a vision. 
And the vision was of a sheet coming down from heaven. And inside the sheet, which was held up by its four corners, were all kinds of animals, including those which were unclean, unkosher to eat. And a voice from heaven said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh, No way, I, I can't do that. I've never done such a thing. I've never eaten anything unclean. To which God said, Do not call unclean that which God has cleansed. That which God has made clean. This repeated itself three times. And as Peter was thinking, what does this mean? And wrestling with it in his mind, he's also told there are some men approaching, three of them. And these men come from a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius is going to invite you back to his house. Spoiler, if you didn't guess by his name, he's a Gentile. And you are to go, to go with him. And if we pick up with verse 29, the story continues. He went, and, and I was sent for. I came without objection. This is Peter speaking. I ask you then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, at about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that has been commanded of you by the Lord. And so as Peter stands up to begin speaking, we read that he opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It's, it's wild to me that Peter needed this extra epiphany. We think about the day of Pentecost, and we think about Peter standing up and preaching to the thousands of people gathered there, gathered because of the spectacle of the tongues that the apostles were speaking in. And, and in the midst of his sermon, Peter quoted in Acts 2.21 this beautiful passage, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. First spoken by the prophet Joel centuries earlier, how powerful for him to quote that passage while it's being fulfilled. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. And yet, even as it was being fulfilled, Peter didn't quite understand the breadth of it. Everyone. Reminds me a bit of our history in America, right? If there's any one document that kind of kicked the whole thing off, we might think it's the Declaration of Independence. It's self-evident, meaning you don't even need to make a case for it. It's self-evident that all men are created equal. Centuries later, we're still going, oh, oh, all men, with the Emancipation Proclamation, with the Civil Rights Movement, with, with women's suffrage, these things, oh, oh, all men, they meant all people, and kind of this having to have all of these subsequent epiphanies. Now, naturally, I'm not saying that that was a divinely inspired document. What I'm saying is that our own prejudices can blind us to the clear meaning of things, and that that happened with Peter here. Even, even when we acknowledge that God might be at work, sometimes we, we hold back in certain ways. I remember in the 90s, uh, on the news a lot, there was, there was a, a lot of people just starting to argue on the news as if that's the news. And they were arguing about the fact that China 
even with all of its human rights uh, violations and all it was doing, persecuting the church and everything, China had been granted the most favored nation status. And people were very upset about what we, their most favored nation. And I think that Peter is coming in here thinking that, oh, we've got most favored nation status. Now he's seen God working in the Samaritans. He's, he's heard of the Ethiopian eunuch. He, he knows that things are moving outward, but obviously he's still holding tightly to something. In the late 90s, they tried to get around this problem by renaming most favored nation status to normal trade relations which doesn't sound nearly like as big a deal, and yet even within the group of nations that have normal trade relations, there are those getting the preferential treatment, and that seems to be sort of where Peter's mind is. Oh yeah, we're all equal before God, but some of us are a little more equal, if you know what I mean. So Peter has had his mind open now. He's had his mind blown by this vision. He has come along and done the unthinkable and walked right in the front door, of a Gentile's home. He begins with the words we just read, and then he launches into a sermon, and of course, it seems that this is a summary of a longer message, which, which is what we see throughout the New Testament. And as he preaches, I want you to notice what kind of sermon this is. First of all, he got there and said, okay, why am I here? And he was immediately told, well, we're all gathered, me, my family, my servants, my friends, and some of the soldiers who are under me, we're all gathered to hear you tell us what God has commanded you. Okay, nothing like zero preparation time, but Peter launches right into it. He's been asked to, to speak what God has commanded of him. Not to speak what's on his mind, not to speak what he thinks they need to hear, but to speak what God has commanded. He doesn't frame this in all the outward benefits of following Jesus. You'll be happier and healthier. You'll, you'll be more balanced in your life. Your kids will be better behaved. You know, you'll feel better. You'll have, you'll have more success in your career. No, none of that. He tells us what God commanded him. The simple message of Jesus Christ. He doesn't change the message to fit his audience. Now, when we see Peter and especially Paul proclaiming the gospel to Jews in the synagogues or to Gentiles elsewhere. Then they change the way they present the gospel, but the gospel itself remains the same. And I think it's important that it says he opened his mouth and spoke. You read that and go, well, that, why do you need that detail? I mean, if it hadn't said he opened his mouth, I wasn't going to think that Peter was like, let me tell you about Jesus today. No, no, no. This is a common idiom. Seems to mean in the New Testament that in the opening of the mouth, words were given to him by the Holy Spirit, along with the boldness to proclaim them. Now, we live in a day and age when it's almost assumed that in order for the gospel to have any relevance and have any impact, it has to be reframed and reinvented and got some weird spin put on it and, and proclaimed in some exciting and unique way. I find that more often than not, when we do this sort of thing, we steal the simple power of the simple message of salvation. I think it's good advice. What Mr. Malko, our junior high principal, used to say to me, which was, Bartles, don't get cute. When you're proclaiming the gospel, don't get cute. 
What we see here is a bare bones presentation. There's no video clips. There's no soft music building up to the invitation at the end. In fact, the closest it gets to an invitation at the end is when Peter says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the powerful statement. And in making that statement that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. When the Gospels proclaimed, the Spirit works in calling His own to Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. So the rest of this message, it's a presentation of, of this thing we talked about earlier in the book of the Acts called the kerygma, or the proclamation. And it's a, a basic message about Jesus that we find again and again. It always has the same basic elements in it. It's a story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It begins with the fact that Jesus' coming was foretold by the prophets ages before he came. It ends with the fact that he will come back as judge. And in between, it hits all the highlights of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. And it's rooted in history. Even though that's something that perhaps the Jews would have more accepted uh, rather than the Gentiles, they would want something more ethereal and philosophical. He doesn't change it. He says, no, i got to tell you about things that happened. The Episcopal theologian Massey Shepard said this, the gospel is not presented as, to mankind as an argument about religious principles, nor is it offered as a philosophy of life. Christianity is a witness to certain facts to events that have happened, to hopes that have been fulfilled, to realities that have been experienced, to a person who has lived and died and been raised from the dead to reign forever. And so it hits uh, the historical highlights of Jesus' ministry. We can assume that he said more about each of these things, but we're told what the elements are. We have the baptism of Jesus emphasized here. And I think that the baptism of Jesus is something that we often leave out of our gospel presentation. If we're going to proclaim, we say, well, let's just get right to the death on the cross. For whatever reason, again and again, in the book of Acts, the, the baptism is emphasized. As we see him talking about Jesus in Galilee after his baptism and how God had come and given his stamp of approval to his son, it reminds us that in being baptized, Jesus identified himself with us. He didn't need to be baptized because he didn't have any sin. He said, I need to be baptized because it is fitting. He identified with us. He chose to become one of us and identify with us. At the same time, at the baptism of Christ, the Father identified him to us. When a voice from heaven came down as the, as the uh, Spirit descended in the form of the dove, and, and the voice said, This is my Son, whom I love. In Him I am well pleased. That's what you call superliminal communication. You've heard of subliminal? It's under the surface. Then there's this liminal. That's what I'm doing now. Then you've got the superliminal. When the heavens open and a big booming voice says something, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. After his baptism, we're told about his earthly ministry. Boiled down to, he went about doing good and healing. I'm sure there were examples given. 
Perhaps Peter said, let me tell you about this crazy time in my house when these guys dug through the roof. The emphasis, though, is on the fact that Jesus went from place to place. He was a a person who did good. He helped people. He healed people. Those of us who follow Jesus are his disciples. We also should have the same thing said of us, that we go about doing good and bringing healing, not bringing division and anger and this sort of thing. He went about doing good and healing. Then on to his crucifixion, that he died. He, He died for us. It's Peter himself who will later write in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And here in Acts 10, Peter also says he he was put to death by hanging on a tree. Of course, the Old Testament says that anyone who has put to death by being hung on a tree is cursed. Well, Jesus indeed became a curse for us, bore the curse of our sins. Got some good news for you. He did not remain dead. Obviously, the next thing that Peter highlights is the resurrection. That he was raised again and that he was seen by the witnesses that God had foreordained, that he had chosen in advance. And those people who saw him didn't just see brief glimpses like, was that Jesus? I don't know. No, they saw him face to face. And they saw him eating and drinking, Peter says. Why does that matter? Because remember what their first assumption was when they saw him. This is a ghost, a spirit, a a specter. Jesus is so patient with them, with all of us. He says, okay, if you want, you can touch my hands, you can touch my side. Flesh and bone, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bone, right? And you know what? I could eat. How about some fish? And he could eat because he was raised to life again bodily. Not that his ideas lived on or that his spirit was still with them. No, his body came out of the grave and he was raised again and he was truly and forever alive. We're told here at the beginning that the gospel is the good news of peace. That's how he proclaims it. This is the good news of peace, the gospel of peace. Paul will later, as he is laying out the armor of God, say that what you put on your feet, what brings you from place to place, is the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's good news because it's how we find peace with God. It's good news because where once between you and your creator stood Satan, the adversary, the accuser, pointing at your sin and declaring how filthy you were and making sure that that chasm between you and your creator remained fixed in place, just as surely as the cherub and the flashing sword kept Adam and Eve out of the garden, now between you and God stands Christ. Satan's been cast to earth and a third of the angels with him. And now, now between you and God stands Christ, not to point out your sin, it's already been washed away. Rather, to make peace, to reconcile, to advocate on your behalf, and to usher you into the very presence of God. There is no chasm between us any longer. This is not the false peace that the world offers. The world will say, oh, you can find peace. It's, it's this, just recognize and, and own, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Everything that you feel is shameful in your life, in your thoughts, in your motives, in your actions, just own it and celebrate it. Peace, peace, have peace. 
The prophet Jeremiah said, Woe to those who have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Those who were not ashamed of their abominations, those who did not even know how to blush. But Christ came to purchase actual peace. And while it's free for us, it was horrendously costly for him. Then the final piece here is that Jesus will come as judge of the living and the dead. This is not, again, some, some soft and limp, build your own peace, fool yourself into believing that everything is okay. No, there is a, an emphasis on the fact that judgment is coming, that God is a God of mercy and a God who has wrath against sin, and now he holds open the door of salvation, saying, come in, all who will. Come in and I will give you peace. All who weary are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. Come now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. This is not a message of peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is not a message of, oh, go on sinning so that quote-unquote grace may increase. No, as real grace increases, we want to go on sinning less and less. These are the elements that Peter chooses to preach in a brief message to people who are gathered together who do not know Jesus. And if you ask somebody, what is the gospel, and this isn't the stuff that they proclaim, they're telling you a false gospel. The gospel is the, per the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the good news itself. We see that God puts his stamp of approval on Peter's message because he doesn't even get through to the end, it doesn't seem, before the Holy Spirit is being poured out on these Gentiles. And there's no denying that God is at work because the very same miraculous gifts of the Spirit that were manifest at the day of Pentecost with the apostles and the original core group of disciples is now present in the Gentiles as well. They're speaking in tongues. The coming of the Spirit seems to have been visible and or audible. There was no question and so Peter says, hey, who can hold back the water of baptism from these people? Who, who will stand in the way would be another way to translate that verb. Who's going to stand in the way so that we do not bring the baptism? It reminds me a bit of in a wedding, the part where I say, and I always insist on this just because I love the awkward moment, when I say, if anyone knows any reason why these two should not be married, speak now. Or forever hold your peace. Peter says, anybody got anything to say? Speak now. That word that he uses, who would hold back the water? Or who would forbid? Or who would stand in the way? It's the same word we saw back in Acts 8. When Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are on the way, on the road, in the chariot, discussing Jesus and what he came to do. And the eunuch says, look, there's water. What is to hold me back? What is to forbid me? What is to stand in the way of me being baptized? And the answer was nothing. And they stopped and went down into the water and he was baptized and received the Holy Spirit. It's the same word that's used when they were bringing children to Jesus so he could bless them. And the disciples said, we don't have time for this stuff. And they got in between and literally stood in the way and said, hey, 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 no more kids. We got important stuff to do. And Jesus said, let the little children come on to me. Do not hinder them. Do not forbid them. Do not stand in the way. You think that you're more important than them? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's the same Greek word that's used 
when, when Peter's trying to score some points because he just made a, a bonehead of himself, and he says, you know, th th there was a time uh, recently on our training trip when, when we saw a guy casting out demons in your name, but he didn't follow with us. He wasn't part of our little group, so I stopped him. I said, you knock that off. Jesus said, don't hinder them. For whoever is not against us is for us. Peter's got a real history of saying, hey, you, no, 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 no. You're not part of the elite group. You're not part of the most favored nation status that gets to follow Jesus. But he's coming around. And these Gentiles, by grace, through faith, they have been saved. They've believed. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And now, yes, they should be baptized. And Peter sees that. He proclaims it. But notice that, that even when the Holy Spirit is poured out and there's no question about what's going on, all of those who came with him from Joppa, maybe even including Peter, they're amazed. They're, they say, wow, even the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit. Even those dirtbags, even the Gentiles. See, God's got to work and work at expunging from our hearts and minds those old prejudices, those old ideas about how we are the most favored. When we talk about favor in the sense of Christian theology, we're talking about grace. It's always unmerited. And if you think you deserve more than someone else, you're wrong. If you think you need more than someone else, you're probably right. And so they marveled. They marveled because those guys, they don't follow after us. They didn't become Jews first and then from there start following Jesus like we did. And yet Peter is no longer hindering anyone. Rather, he's saying, who will stand in the way? No, no one good. Get out of the way and let God work. And this is important because Jesus is showing them that there is a need for other people that weren't even on their radar before. Yesterday, he, Peter didn't know who Cornelius was. Today, everything's changed because of him. Alistair Begg points out that both of these men had major things wrong when they first met each other. Last week, we saw this, that, that as he walked in the door, Cornelius actually bows down as if to worship him. When, when they first got together, before it was clear what God was up to, we see that, that Cornelius thinks of Peter as if he were a god, and Peter, at first, thinks of Cornelius as if he were a dog. One's thinking too highly of the other. One's thinking far too low of the other. They need each other to have a full picture. Cornelius needed Peter to bring the gospel. Peter needed Cornelius to see the direction that God had in mind for the spreading of the kingdom. We need each other if we are to see clearly what God is up to. And we need it because like Peter, we've all got our prejudices. Some of us maybe even prejudices that we are not aware of. I think it's an interesting exercise to just tell someone, hey, close your eyes and imagine a family on their way to church. Everything we see in our mind is probably a reflection of ourselves. What we look like, what we would dress like, what we would be like. And that's okay. Our own context in, informs what we know and what we would picture. But the enemy can use that as a little hook on which to start hanging wicked assumptions and presumptions. Wicked, arrogant, 
and prideful thoughts about how we are God's most favored people. How God prefers our way of doing things. He prefers, oh, my culture, even my race. God prefers our nation or our denomination, our tradition. One great advantage of churches pushing and striving to become more multicultural is that it is a way to guard against some of these things. And realize what Peter says, that God in Christ is Lord of all. Of all. It's been a great help to me. And this has been an area I've grown in greatly during the time I've been here. It's been wonderful to, to see people in different contexts. The kind of things that make me go, wow, that, that didn't even look like church to me. To walk into a, a one-bedroom apartment on Richwood in, in South Lansing, when I've been asked to go and preach six or seven years ago, and see 50 almost shoeless Nepali Christians sitting Indian-style shoved into a living room. Uh, and, they, and they say, okay, just stand up here and preach. Then we're going to want to have the Lord's Supper, if you would administer that. It's been wonderful for me to, to have that opportunity to see the struggling Arab Christian churches full of incense and candles and things and Palestinian-controlled territory struggling, knowing that persecution is waiting just beyond the horizon at any time. It's good for us to stretch like God stretched Peter, to remind us that the church doesn't just look like us that God is the Lord of all, and that Christ, through the Spirit, is at work around the world and everywhere. What God has made clean, the voice said, do not call impure. Some translations say, do not call common. And that's the most obvious translation. In fact, the word is koine. When I was in seminary, I, I had almost every semester a class in koine Greek. Koine Greek is the common Greek, the common tongue of just everybody. And here's the word koine. Don't call it koine if I've cleansed something. Or we could translate that, the one whom I have cleansed do not call common. And that's what's happening here. Those whom he has cleansed. They've been washed in the blood of Jesus. And now Peter sees they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says there is no difference in their standing before God and ours. That God looks at them and he says, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Behold, my daughter, whom I love, in her I am well pleased. The gospel is good news for all who believe. More recently, I've heard people pushing back against this sentiment, saying, Well, we have kind of an emergency situation on our hands right now. Things are getting tough for the church. We've got to sort of circle the wagons, protect ourselves from those people or those people or these kinds of people. It, it, it's, it's real tough times to which I say, no, no, no. Especially not in our context. The gospel is not facing a greater challenge today than it was when Peter spoke in the temple courts or in the Samaritan villages or in the home of Cornelius. Or when Paul reasoned in the synagogues and dialogued in the Areopagus and welcomed anyone who would come into his home to hear the gospel, his home which also happened to be his jail cell. There are so many justifications we could make for having a small view of the church. 
And yet, because of justification, that doctrine that says when you believe, your sins are washed away and you stand before God with the righteousness of Christ, none of them will hold water. As we read a text like this, I pray that we find ourselves stretched and challenged to look at our preconceived notions about what the church looks like and who is welcome in it and and whom we should be seeking out, seeking to save the lost. Who it is who is beyond the reach of the gospel, which is no one. And who it is that is within the reach of Christ to save them, which is everyone. That we would pray that God would blow away and burn away and take away any of these old preconceived notions, these old prejudices, these old relics of the flesh, wherever they come up. In fact, let's begin to pray for that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the awkwardness that we see in those first moments between Cornelius and Peter. We thank you that we can be comforted that you would use a guy who was so ready to pull out his sword to join with James and John in calling down fire from heaven, to do anything to to protect his favored status. That once he'd been granted the status as the rock on which the church would be built, Lord, we thank you that we see him growing and beginning to understand that God shows no favoritism. Lord, we pray that we would see the same thing growing in us, that we would be emboldened because of how you were able to use a man like that to understand that you can use men and women like us. And that, Lord, everyone we look at, we would see through the eyes of Christ. That we would not see the enemy or people who stand on the opposite side of a political divide or a culture war, but rather when we look around our community and our nation and our world, we would see brothers and sisters in Christ and we would see people who are in need of salvation that our hearts would be moved by compassion and that we would reach out in love and mercy, remembering the epiphany that Peter had. And Lord, may we have it too. May we have it daily. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.